And if you don't have a Bible, feel free simply to listen along as I read. So John chapter 4 from verse 1 to 26. It says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and, and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank it for it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. So the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and now has come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. It's a really wonderful passage and when it comes to the issue of homosexuality in light of the Christian faith and whether or not Christians are fundamentally homophobic, this is a wonderful passage that is really instructive to us in two main ways. Two ways that I want to spend a little bit of time exploring with you now. And so firstly, from the passage that I just read, The first thing that we see about Jesus is his generosity. The generosity of Jesus. 
generosity of spirit that leads him to associate with people from all walks in life. Now, I think it's important for us just to take a few moments to truly appreciate what Jesus is doing here and appreciate the specific historical setting in which Jesus found himself in. For without this setting, it's easy for us actually to miss the sheer weight of Jesus' actions and attitudes towards the Samaritan woman. You see, by birth, Jesus was a Jew. He was born in Bethlehem, down in Judea, in the ancient southern kingdom of Israel in the first century. In our passage, at the start of our passage that I read, there were Jewish Pharisees. And these were a group of religious elites in Israel. And they were beginning to take notice of and starting to question why Jesus was getting all these disciples and followers around him. And so Jesus took notice of this and he thought, okay, I'm going to head out of town. And so he heads out to town and heads towards Galilee, a place where he spent much of his childhood growing up, having moved there after being born in Bethlehem. Now, for him to actually go to Galilee, he had to pass through a place called Samaria, which was part of the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, Samaria was a land that was actually originally at one with Judea in the south. But due to various historical events, including a division between the northern and southern kingdoms and invasions from Assyria and Babylon, the people in Samaria had become a mixed people. Ethnically and religiously, they were now different to the Jews to the south, and they had their own set of beliefs. All this collectively together meant that to Jews, Samaritans were actually kind of disdained people. They were religiously considered impure and unclean. And for many Jews, to even associate with a Samaritan would have been not the done thing to do in his day. But that's what Jesus is doing here. He's associating with the Samaritan woman. But not only is it a Samaritan who he was speaking to, but it was a woman. Which again, in that cultural setting, would have been socially frowned upon for Jesus as a Jewish male to associate with in such a way that he did. With women being undervalued in the culture of that day. And actually, to top things off, the passage, as we will explore later, highlights that this woman was immoral. Her life was questionable. Her actions were questionable. And so here we have a colossal trifecta that the text is pointing out to us, with Jesus associating with an immoral female Samaritan. And yet, there he was, treating her like anyone else that he would. Straight away, Jesus' approach here has something to say regarding Christianity's attitude towards others. Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus constantly associated with all people. And in many cases, especially with those considered outcasts. Jesus associated with lepers, the sick, the poor, greed-ridden tax collectors, prostitutes. But he he also associated with the upper class as well. Like Nicodemus in chapter 3, he was a high-flying Pharisee. Or even powerful Roman centurions who commanded an army of, of men and had held a very powerful position. 
I think in this way, it's just wonderful how Jesus exemplifies a generous spirit that all Christians and Christianity ought to have towards others, no matter what the other person's background is. Gay and lesbian people then are simply human beings like anyone else who may cross the Christian path. There is something fundamentally bridge-building about Jesus' attitude in our passage here. And actually all who seek to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Romans 12, 18, Paul says, If it is possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. There have been times that Christians and churches have actually acted in uncharitable and ungenerous ways towards others, including gay and lesbian people. There is nothing compromising about having a generous attitude towards others. In fact, quite the opposite. To not give of ourselves, our time, our friendships to some groups or communities of people would actually be compromising the truth, being inconsistent with Jesus' own example that he set. He was willing to interact with any social category and and push the social boundaries of his day. Such a generous spirit comes when you are reminded of how much you yourself need the gospel and God's redemptive work in your own life. And so I just want to ask you today, if you reflect on your own life and your own attitude towards others, would you consider yourself to have a generous spirit? There's one other thing that we see in our passage that Jesus uh, shows in his attitude towards this woman. And that is also the honesty of Jesus. First, we saw the, the generosity. Secondly, let's, let's consider his honesty here according to the passage. Honesty that is willing to address our shortcomings. Not because Jesus disdains us, but because he generally wants the best for us. As I read the passage, having asked the woman to draw water for him, uh, the woman was surprised that Jesus would even ask her in a reply, uh, as we read in the reply, how it is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a, a woman of Samaria? Jesus then continues, speaking of having this living water that would permanently quench any person's thirst. This woman is intrigued and and wants to know how she can get a hold of this rejuvenating water for herself. In verse 15, she says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. I mean, the irony is just pouring off the page here. This woman wanted relief from having to keep, having to trek out of town to come to this well in the hot sun, all alone and ostracized. Not knowing that what Jesus was referring to here was a spiritual living water, being eternal life found in him. What Jesus does next in our passage just reveals his honesty through and through by highlighting the very thing that was stopping the woman from experiencing this renewed spiritual life that he was speaking of. That is, Jesus, he, he gently convicts her of her immoral ways. From verse 16, I'll read again. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. 
Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now there's no way that any human, ordinary human being could have known what Jesus knew about this lady. But Jesus, being God in human flesh, armed with supernatural knowledge, knew about this woman's messy life. All her marriages and relationships and the fact that she was alone here at the well all pointed to the fact that she was ostracized by a fellow Samaritans. Being known as someone who would be sleeping around and not given to marriage commitment and faithfulness. But why does Jesus confront her with her shortcomings here? Why point out the fact that she wasn't living up to the Bible's standard of sexual ethics? Because he knew that what was holding her back from eternal true life, true contentment and true joy in him. You see, for this woman, her desire was to actually be happy, to find contentment and security in her relationships with other men. But evidently, they did not satisfy the deepest desires of her heart. One relationship after another followed, but all they did was to heap on more guilt and hurt through broken relationships. Instead, Jesus was gently nudging her to find true fulfillment in that which truly satisfies. In finding the true living waters that satisfies the deepest thirst of the human soul. To be spiritually nourished by God himself and not by other things in this life. But for that to occur, Jesus had to address the things, the idols, the sin and immorality that was holding her back from finding eternal life. The story of this woman is really the story of all humanity in some shape or form. In how we all have in some way or another fallen short of God's good and perfect design. Uh, To the eyes of a Westerner today, whenever the Bible speaks of morality of any sense, or any standard that we should or shouldn't live by, I think we instinctively want to push back against it. Why is this? Well, in the West, we have a notion of freedom. Indeed, we have a a deeply entrenched belief of self-determination. And this makes any moral standard feel kind of restrictive to us. Any speak of any moral standard can feel like a heavy chain or or a cage that's upon us that we need to triumphantly conquer and break free from. But God's design for morality and and sexual ethics is, is actually not meant to be viewed like that. Instead, it's actually meant to be viewed in an entirely positive way, being part of God's good design for us. By all of us somehow living outside of God's standards, being rebels by nature, what has resulted in is humanity having our relationship with God broken. Now humanity have been cut off from the source of spiritual life, from eternal peace, from contentment, joy and happiness that can only be found in God to the fullest extent. We have been cut off from God himself. Now, humanity tragically finds itself in what you might call a a spiritual rat race, forever chasing empty things in this life, thinking that they will give us long-lasting and complete fulfillment. 
when at a fundamental level, earthly things cannot actually achieve that. For only God can give what truly satisfies the deepest longings of the human heart. Having all this in mind about Jesus' honesty here is, I think, really instructive for us when it comes to the issue of homosexuality from a biblical point of view. Uh, As you survey the Bible, the Bible in various passages is clear that homosexuality is not part of God's good design for humanity and would be classified as immoral by nature. Along with any other sexual expression or act that's outside the boundary of sex within heterosexual marriage. Uh, In his books, uh, Is God Anti-Gay? Sam Albury, uh, he actually faithfully outlines some of these key passages. And he goes through showing what the Bible says about homosexuality specifically. Uh, He's a pastor himself, a man who's experienced same-sex attraction and and yet choosing to live within God's design according to the Bible. Uh, one such such passage that he alludes to uh, is 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 9 and 10 where that's one example of what it's, uh, the Bible speaks of regarding homosexuality. Uh, it says there, the Apostle Paul says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. However, like the woman at the well, whenever the Bible points out what sits in the no camp in terms of morality, like verses like this, when it comes to morality, it always does so for an even greater yes that's found in Jesus, pointing us to the living waters of eternal life found in Christ alone. If you just read one more verse further on in that same passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, Paul goes on and says this, And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In his own way, Paul is saying that actually our life in God is the best thing above anything in this world or or how we choose to live. Choosing to live for God and His ways actually brings the best fulfillment. All this means that not only are churches who are ungenerous, towards gays and lesbians failing to live out the gospel. But also churches who are entirely affirmative of homosexual practices are also failing to live out the gospel. How? Because they're not being honest with what the Bible itself says, nor with what is truly offered to us in the gospel. Rather than finding fulfillment and life in Jesus, they are offering a substitute thinking that humanity is most free and most fulfilled when we can express whatever sexuality we please to to express, even if that falls outside of God's good design. In this way, they're offering instead a lowercase yes, while missing out on a much bigger capital yes in Jesus, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
So if, re, if following Jesus and, and finding living water in him and, and having the promise of eternal life and actually true fulfillment and happiness and contentment in God is, is found in him, how do you actually receive that? Maybe you can listen to a message like this and think, well, maybe I just need to do what the Bible says with, our, with my morality. If I just tick all the boxes and choose actually to live God's way according to design, maybe that's enough. Well, no. It's actually by, by God's grace that we receive this eternal life. At the start of Jesus' ministry in Mark chapter 1 from verse 14, Jesus says this about himself. Uh, now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So firstly there, we, we need to actually just understand what the gospel is, the good news. At the center of this good news is what Jesus, as the Christ, the Messiah, did on the cross where he died. And in his miraculous resurrection, three, on, three days after his death. On the cross, what we see is generosity and honesty collide. Where Jesus generously, quite literally, gave up his life to die in the place of sinners. And equally, we see there God being upfront and honest with humanity. Showing us all that not only what we deserve for our immorality, represented in Jesus' own death, but where he squarely and fairly pays the full price of our sin. Having now permanently raised from the dead, for those who turn to him, Jesus now shares his eternal life with his followers. And so in response, Jesus calls everyone to repent and believe. To repent means to turn away from immorality and instead live for him. But also to believe. Believe that Jesus does truly offer living water, eternal life, the forgiveness of sins. And so will, will you in faith consider his offer of eternal life? As I close now, uh, Leah will come up soon and share her story that relates to what I've said really in John 4. Uh, as she's coming up, I just want to offer a short prayer as we uh, finish uh, this time together. So allow me to pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for this really important reminder of what does it mean to be living out the gospel? What does it mean to be both generous and honest? Thank you that you were both generous and honest with, with us to begin with. And how you gave yourself on the cross to die for us. And that you were honest saying that if I didn't do that, you wouldn't have eternal life. Thank you that, Father, as, as Christians we can, we can know that. That you have opened up a way of salvation for us. Father, we also want to confess that as it comes to the issue of of morality and, and specifically today, homosexuality, we, we confess, Father, that as your Christian church across the Western world, we, we haven't always got this right. There are times that we haven't been as generous as we ought to have been. Equally, there's been times that we haven't been as honest as we should have been. 
Father, will you forgive us? Forgive us for muddying the water and, and, and not being clear and displaying the, the beauty and the power of the gospel. Father, I also pray for anyone here that is perhaps hearing the gospel for the first time and, and considering what does it mean to, to follow Jesus and whether or not that is something worth doing. I, I pray, Father, that you would uh, work in them, that you would show them the power of your gospel in a very tangible way. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Good afternoon. I'm a little nervous, so I'm going to stick to the script. It's probably best anyway, or else we could be here all night if I ad-lib. You'll often hear this common theme in stories like mine, that as a kid, I just felt different. I just didn't feel like I fit in. And for me, this was certainly the case in my childhood, Um, when I was comparing myself with my sisters or mixing within sort of the girly circles, um, I often felt other than. I used to pray to God that he would make me into a boy. Um, And even through puberty, I really hated what my body was turning into. Had I grown up in today's culture, uh, I could very easily be a typical candidate uh, for the gender clinic And in amongst this gender confusion, I also began to notice that I was more attracted to girls than boys. However, I thought, if I just ignore this long enough, it'll probably resolve and go away. And my gender confusion did actually resolve over time, as it does with most children. But this same-sex attraction didn't. And in fact, it intensified more and more, uh, particularly in my late teens and early 20s. The reality of my same-sex attraction almost felt too controversial to actually bring up and share with anyone, so I kept this quite to myself. University became a place where um, I really began to question everything. I had this internal wrestle uh, between my head and my heart because, you see, I'd been raised in a Christian home. And from my understanding, I wasn't meant to be feeling these feelings. But this same-sex attraction was just so consuming and it left me feeling very confused and hopeless. I went on to research every perspective that I could on this topic. I actually really wanted to be convinced uh, that it was okay to be a gay Christian After much time spent listening, watching, reading uh, all the different perspectives out there, in the end I just couldn't come uh, to to the result or the conviction that being a lesbian was God's plan for my life. And yet, while this was being resolved in my mind, this wasn't matching the reality that I was still living with, with my attraction towards women. And I resisted these desires for quite some time, but the university culture just became all too appealing for me. And I entered into some lesbian relationships and the gay community. It promised so much, and for a time it delivered. But over time, I started to become more and more unhappy 
because I was chasing or what I was chasing in these relationships was still just leaving me very empty. I also began to experience some mental health struggles at the same time with uh, some anxiety, uh, depression and loneliness, just to name a few. And throughout this time I went in and out of relationships trying to, again, chase this glimpse of fulfilment and wholeness. Still up to this point, I had not shared this, uh, what I was uh, living or the life I was living with any of my friends or family. It was in my mid-twenties that I just couldn't continue this roller coaster ride. It was really exhausting to try and live almost like a double life. Many times over, I tried in my own strength uh, to alleviate this heavy burden, but to no avail. So... I finally poured out my heart and soul to a Christian couple that I was living with at the time. I was expecting the worst. I thought, these guys are going to tell me to pack my bags and get out. And in stark contrast, they simply said, we're not experienced in this area, but we're going to journey with you, whatever that looks like. And so began a life-changing journey for me, albeit slow and really hard at times. For me to tell you how God orchestrated all these uh, events and moments that, uh, that was on my journey and that's led me to today, it would just take way too long. But what I can tell you is how faithful God was in leading me to where I am. Many people were influential. Many people were supportive and many were Christians. None of these supports I experienced were ever, ever coercive or attacking on my same-sex attraction or even my lesbian relationships. In fact, all of these supports uh, were nothing but compassion. Uh, they were loving, but they were also uncompromising uh, in truth. And this is truly a Christ-like response. I also pursued some counselling from psychologists at various times, And throughout these sessions, um, I experienced a process of change and renewal. Firstly, in my sexual orientation, uh, with a significant reduction in my same-sex attraction. And secondly, in the mental health struggles that I mentioned earlier. Some of these notable changes um, I'll describe for you. I lost my profound anxiety and self-consciousness, and I became carefree and comfortable within my own skin. I lost my guilt and shame, and I began to live unashamed and forgiven. I lost my sense of feeling different, and I began to explore who God created me to be as a woman and a unique individual. I lost my coping mechanism to self-withdraw, and I became outgoing and flourished in valuable friendships. And I stopped having thoughts that life was just too hard and not worth living. But I found life in abundance. And I experienced God's mercies being made new every morning that we read about in Limitations 3. These visible changes actually revealed what was uh, being radically impacted and or changed within me at a much deeper level. You will have heard the word identity 
uh, being used to describe how people define themselves. Uh, to be honest, I, f- I find this a little bit of a buzzword today, uh, but for the sake of all being on the, on the same page, that's what I'll refer to it as. But during my years in lesbian relationships, uh, my identity was in my sexuality. My relationships determined my sen- sense of worth. And as a result, I idolised uh, each relationship. I was constantly looking uh, to my girlfriends uh, for this profound sense of value and belonging. But throughout my journey of renewal, I began to realise that the only one, actually, who can truly quench this thirst that I was desiring, and in fact, maybe all of us are desiring, is Jesus. And as we've just heard from Tim, Jesus really is the true living water. This revelation completely changed my life. I lost my need for human approval from others and began to look to to God my Father for complete value, love and belonging. And we read in Romans 5 verse 8 that God proves his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. No other relationship or identity can even compete with that. Now, this doesn't mean that human relationships and connections are not important. They are important, and in fact, God designed them for us. Um, But placing God my Father and God my Creator and Jesus my Saviour as my identity means that He defines me and He gives me purpose, not anything or anyone else. And to be honest, this, this just takes the pressure off. Um, it seems like there's a lot of energy these days either pursuing one's identity, trying to figure it out even, or trying to convince others uh, to affirm or celebrate your identity. But for those whose identity is in Christ, there's no need for anything but to know that you are his. In 1 Peter 2 verse 9 it says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Oh, to rest in the arms of God like a child rests in the arms of a parent. That's truly been my comfort. So I went on uh, to live in this newfound freedom as a single woman uh, for about two to three years. And I was thrilled uh, with where God had brought me. This place was enough for me. But then from that, God went on to bless me with husband and children. Um, And you know, 15 years ago, the thought of a husband was not at all part of my ideal plan. Um, And kids were not on my radar. But here I am, married, with two kids. And I love being a wife. And I love being a (laughs) mum. It's amazing. God really can change the desires of your heart. And his greater yes for me has really been the best. (laughs) Now, I don't want to convey that, you know, life's all roses. (laughs) It can, life can still be challenging, absolutely. But I'm far more secure and content than I ever have been. 
But having said all that, as much as Tim is an amazing husband and friend and as much as I love my kids, marriage and having children are not the measure of success in my story. It is only through Jesus Christ's transformative work that I am now living a peace-filled life. Such is the power of the gospel. I'll just conclude um, with a passage in scripture that I frequently read in my times of hopelessness and it's Isaiah 55. I won't read the whole thing but just some verses from it. No matter where you are in life, no matter what you're addicted to or what you're chasing to fulfil your identity, this passage puts a call out to all people. Come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the water. Pay attention and come to me. Listen so that you will live. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while he is near. Let the wicked one abandon his way and the sinful one his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord so that he may have compassion on him. To our God who will freely forgive. And you will indeed go out with joy and be peacefully guided. Indeed, I've experienced this peace and joy that comes from God alone. And it's been a pleasure to share that with you. So thank you.